If we haven't met before, my name's Ronnie. Uh, I'm on staff here at the church, and uh, um, I'm going to move this because my solo comes later. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, this morning, I thought, what better way to start off the new year, which, happy new year, by the way, but what better way to start off the new year than to jump into the book of Judges? <laughs> Why not? Um, you know, it's occasionally when you get called in on short notice, you just kind of pick up where you've been. And this last semester in the fall, I did a study in the book of Judges um, on Wednesday nights. And uh, shameless plug here, we have stuff coming that I'm going to tell you about later uh, with our Wednesday night programs uh, and discipleship that we want you to be a part of. But uh, I got to do a study through the book of Judges. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is how incredibly um, timely reading through that book is when you look at where we are in society and in our culture. I don't know the last time that you had a chance to read through the book of Judges. Many of the people who were in the class on Wednesday night with me this semester, when I asked that question, I think maybe two of them had read through it in the last decade. Um, and that's not a shot at them. It's just not one of those books that we tend to spend a lot of time in. We know a lot of the judges. We know who they are. We know their names. We know a bit about their story, but we don't spend a lot of time studying in that book for some reason. And I can tell you why it's painful. It's not a fun book to read because we see in the story, we can easily put ourselves in there and see how we would fare in the same scenarios. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the book. Now, I'm not going to go through all 21 chapters, just let you know that off the front. We're going to give a kind of overview, um, but there's some things that I think we can take from looking at the overview of Judges and think about what we want to see happen in the year ahead of us. And so I will say that one of my favorite commentaries on the book of Judges is, is done by Tim Keller, who many of you may be familiar with. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor and author. And uh, he wrote kind of a devotional slash commentary on the book. And he, he gave two little taglines. Like if you're thinking of Judges as a movie, it would have the ta these taglines to it that I think are really fun. Um, the first one, he says, it's, a despic it's despicable people doing deplorable things. His second one is that it's trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. Let's go, right? Um, but the, the, the great thing is, is that as we look at this and we read this, it, it, I'm going to encourage you. I'm giving you the overview. I'm going to encourage you to go back and read through the book of Judges because ultimately you're going to sit there and go, how in the world is this in the Bible? I mean, you look at some of the judges and what they do. I mean, my favorite, and I have to say this because I told Eli, my son, that I would, my favorite is Ehud. And if you don't know about Ehud, the best thing he's known for is he's left-handed. He takes his sword and shoves it so far into the fat stomach of King Eglon that he loses the sword. <laughs> anyway, I'm telling you, it's worth a read. <clears throat> but reality is the book of Judges is a historical book. It takes us from the time of Moses and Joshua all the way to the first kings. And so it kind of fills in the gaps for us. And what we see is that 
the Israelites are heading into the promised land. They're given instructions on what they're supposed to do. And then we see just how terrible they are at following instructions. Their disobedience, their, their inability to follow through shows up over and over again. And so where the book starts, and I'm not gonna, like I said, I'm gonna give you a little bit of overview, but we're gonna stay in chapter two is where we're gonna spend our time. At the beginning, it starts in chapter one, the very first phrase is after the death of Joshua. And then it gives the instructions of what the Israelites are supposed to do when they go into the land. And I'll just tell you, it's very violent. And they don't do it well. Now, I will say, we can have some sympathy for the Israelites because that's a hard ask. But we see when they half-heartedly do what God has told them to do, the entire rest of the book of Judges shows the outcome and what they have to endure. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, and I want you, to, I want you to, to, to have a little bit of context with it. Um, so we're gonna start in, ch in chapter two, verse six, um, and we're gonna re I'm gonna read the first nine or six through nine to you. This is what it says. Now, I also need to tell you, there's like a second introduction. So we start with Joshua being dead, but then we get into this and it says, when Joshua dismissed the people, he didn't come back to life to dismiss them. It's, it's just a second introduction to it. So in, in verse six of chapter two, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for, uh, for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the, within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. So here's, here's what we're seeing. They're going in, they're being obedient, they're doing what Joshua has called them, told them to do that God has told Joshua to tell them to do. Everything seems to be looking good. Have you ever been driving down the road and see this horrible car wreck and you just see it and you're like, you can't take your eyes off of it and you're like, this is gross, this is horrible, this is... I'm, I'm driving, but I, I can't stop looking. And we, we get in those traffic jams because people slow down to, and, and we just kind of try to take in every detail. That is what's about to happen in the book of Judges. The car wreck is happening and we're watching as, as readers, we can see how bad this is. Now we don't speculate when we pass a car wreck on what happened. Sometimes we do, I guess. But with this, we don't have to speculate we can actually see what has happened here. And so as we, as we get to this and we, we, we approach the car wreck that is judges, I want you to, to, to know that the Israelites were warned. They were told what would happen. If you don't believe me, if you're in your Bible, Judges chapter two, stay right there, flip one page back or two pages, depending on how big your print is, and let's look at Joshua chapter 24. And we're just gonna look at a few verses here, but I want you to see. Joshua basically is telling them, and starting in verse 14 and goes all the way through 28, I'm not reading all that, but just to give you a picture of it. 
Joshua tells them, you have a choice. You can serve the Lord and put away the idols that your fathers served back in Egypt, or you can continue to worship those idols and the, the, the idols of the Amorites in whose land you're dwelling in. And what we come to is Joshua's famous verse, 2415, that says, but as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. And so Joshua then tells them exactly what's going to happen because they say, oh yeah, 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 we're, we're, we're not gonna forget. We love, we love the Lord. We're gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna do exactly what he says. And Joshua then tells them, starting in verse 19, what will happen when they don't fully obey what the Lord commands. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. They've been warned. They've been told what's gonna happen when they disobey, when they are half-hearted in their, in their following of what God's told them. And what we see is this. They come in, in Judges 2, 6. We see that, um, we've already read that, but I'm just gonna kind of read through again, that he dismisses the people uh, to their inheritance. Now that is actually in Joshua 24, 28. So he's repeating that in Judges 2 that they dismissed. And then what we begin to see is that in verse 7, the people were doing what they were supposed to do. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua. All the, and, and all the days of the elders who lived him. So they begin to see that. So, so where does it go wrong? If they begin serving the way that God has called them and the way that, that Joshua has told them to serve, where does it go wrong? Jump to verse 10 of chapter two. And it says this, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. <clears throat> and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Ultimately, what we're seeing is the Israelites forgot to, to share these stories with their children. They forgot to teach them the faithfulness of God. They forgot to impart this wisdom to the next generation. Now, I'm just gonna make a statement and I'm not saying that the US is the new Israel, so don't hear that but I want you to hear how simple it is to see what's going on there and how it looks today and what we see in our culture every day, in our society. We have people who've turned away from God, they're chasing after idols and they're neglecting to teach the faithfulness of God to, uh, to, to their children and to the people they're around and they continue to sell themselves out to whatever the newest fad and trend is. So how... How is it then one generation? It's one generation that's passed, right? That's what it says. How can they forget who God is in one generation? And I would venture out to say, it's probably not that they don't know who God is. And it's probably not that they didn't hear the stories from their ancestors about who God is. It's just that they stopped caring. Whatever the parents' generation did was so 
lacking in, in passion and faithfulness that the next generation saw that and said, why? Why should we do this? There's a guy named Michael Yusuf who uh, also has a book that he wrote that's about judges. It's called God Help Me Overcome My Circumstances. And he says this, that when the Israelites started down the road of spiritual defection, they never imagined they would end up violating the first commandment. And he goes on to, to list out Exodus 20, verses three through five. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of, uh, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he makes this statement, and I think it's an interesting one. He said, they only intended to make a few compromises with sin. They didn't intend to blow out the entire first commandment. They just, I won't be that bad if I do this. Again, that's very familiar to us. So in one generation, they forget the stories of God's faithfulness and they begin to turn to the many gods of the Canaanites. Yusuf goes on to say this as well. He says, the Israelites didn't merely bow down before the idols of stone and brass. So that's, that's bad enough. But they also engaged in the horrible and indescribable immorality of the Canaanites. As you read about Canaanite culture, there's a lot of disgusting things that happen in that culture. And what we see is this compromise begins to happen. Keller says it this way. He says that commitment is replaced by complacency and then by compromise. Yes, we are following the Lord to then going, well, that's hard. So I don't know that I'm gonna fully do that to, yeah, I'm just gonna kind of do my own thing. And what you see in the end of the book of Judges is everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's in chapter 21. And we begin to see, again, how this in Judges looks very familiar to this here. And I'm not just saying here in the church, I'm just saying in our society. If you felt that, I'm sorry, but not sorry. Anyway, <clears throat> but here's the thing. He said, it, it, Keller goes on to say that we've gotta be intentional in how we teach the next generation, that when we pass our faith to the next generation, we have to be consistent. And our behavior, wise about reality, and we have to be warm and in in, in personal in our faith. It's no wonder that kids don't want to have anything with God, to do with God when they watch their parents and people who claim to follow Jesus do it so lazily. They, they compromise in various ways. And I'm talking to myself just as much as I am anybody else in this room. The thing that keeps me up at night is I got four kids that I hope and pray know Jesus and follow him well. And if they're looking at my example, I mess up all the time. But hopefully they see what happens on the other side of that mess up is a coming back to Jesus and a, a, a repentance. I'm getting ahead of myself. But 
as we see that, we need to be able to show the next generation that the gospel is practical and not just academic. That it is something we do and not just something we think about and talk about. Um, and I think with the Israelites, that's, that, that might be what is going on there, is that they, they get comfortable in the place that they are, so they stop having to rely on the Lord so much. The promise has been given of the land, so they're there, and they begin to live their lives and get further and further away from the need to be obedient. And I will tell you, as a kid, I used to love going to Six Flags. I used to love going and riding the roller coasters. I loved the, the turns of going upside down, the, all those things. I loved getting to do that. And then, you know, roller coaster makers go to the next level and put them inside in the dark. And so now you can't even see when the turns are coming or when it's gonna flip you. And that just made it even better for me. I'm weird, I don't know. But that was just something I enjoyed doing. I look at the book of Judges like a roller coaster. I could enjoy those roller coasters because I know there was an end. I know that most likely it's not gonna last more than two and a half or three minutes. And then it's gonna come back into the little station and stop and I get off and next people get in. This roller coaster that the, the, the Israelites are about to get into lasts for generations and they have no idea where it stops or where it ends. And the unpredictability messes with them. And so their faithfulness begins to wane. Their, their obedience continues to wander. And so as we look in, in Judges 2, verses 11 through 19, I just wanna kind of give you an idea of what the whole book of Judges ends up being. So jump in with me, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from, and from among other gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, just so everybody knows, the Baals and the Ashtaroth are, for, are the fertility gods of Canaan. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of, the surrounding, of their surrounding enemies so that they no longer could withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and then they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who, afflict, who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after their other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. What I just read to you, a lot of theologians call the judges cycle. There's five things that are in that cycle. The first is rebellion. The Israelites rebelled, they forsook the Lord, they chased after other gods. 
The second phase is anger. It elicits anger in God. He, and this is, not, this is not an anger that is in opposition to his love. It's anger because he does love them. It's anger because he wants better for them. So then he gives them over to oppression and God allows Israel's enemies to oppress them. If you remember in Joshua, they're warned about this. The fourth, that oppression leads to repentance and the people finally cry out to the Lord. And then the fifth is deliverance when God responds to their cries and raises up a judge to save them. And what you'll see, if you actually go back and read through the book of Judges, this repeats over and over and over again. And what happens is where they start, they never get back to. So after they repent, they're further down than where they started. And it just keeps going and going and going. And the judges that they have are less and less ideal. We talk about Gideon and we talk about Samson as being, you know, these people that we, we the stories that we tell as great Bible characters. If you look at who they are, they're not role models. They, trust me on that. If you don't, go back and read their story. Not the Sunday school version, not the VBS version. Go read the scripture and see what it says. Because these guys are not great guys. Jephthah, terrible. But yet God uses him as a judge. And what we see in all of this is that even in the midst of the rebellion, even in the midst of the Israelites making dumb decisions, being disobedient, God still shows up. God still shows his love and mercy and grace. And so it ultimately, ultimately becomes this thing for the Israelites. They have to decide, okay, are, are we going to follow after these other gods? And just to give you some context, the, the, the local gods, the Canaanite gods, they, they all, they have a ton of them. And just a few of them, they have a God of agriculture, a God of business, a God of sex, a God of music, a God of war. Each one has a particular area of influence. As they do their thing, the, the, the people can choose, they can pick and choose which God they wanna follow that day because of whatever need comes up and whatever they desire to do. The hard part for the Israelites is that they're living amongst people who are picking and choosing the God they wanna serve that day. But the Lord they serve, the Lord they're supposed to be following, wants all of them. He's a take all God. He wants total submission and obedience. It asks, he asks a lot, but the benefits that come from that far outweigh the other. And as we look at that, it's the same thing we have to do today. We have to ask ourselves, are we gonna, are we gonna sell ourselves out after the gods of this age? What are those? Money, fame, sex, lust, pleasure, tolerance, knowledge, possessions. I can go on and on with that. We have tons of things that we let our hearts chase after instead of following after God. So the question is, are we going to follow him, the Lord, the one that continues to show up even in our trouble, the one that continues to show mercy and grace even though we've rebelled? Are we gonna chase after these other mini gods 
that have a lot of promise but never deliver. When they don't, when you go after them and you serve the God of money and it doesn't yield any money, sorry, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's just, you're out of luck. This cycle of rebellion, of anger, of oppression, all of that is still alive and well today. We see it and it's hard to break. Um, but like I said earlier in what, what the words of Joshua were, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, if you, whether you choose to serve them or not is up to you. But as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we get our hearts to the place where we can say, okay, I'm not chasing after that anymore. I'm gonna chase after the Lord. Turn to Romans 6. And this is, be, this is where we'll finish up. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. And I quote it a lot. You probably have heard me quote it before. And if you get a chance, read through the whole chapter. Um, it's great. But I'm just gonna pull out a few verses for us. In verses 12 through 14, this is what it says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for, un for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It is a daily submission to the Lord. When I was in college, this passage really, I forget who it was that, that taught on it, but it hit me. And it hit me because it was a, so simple, but yet so hard to do. Simple in concept, hard to carry out. And what it was is this, every morning when I woke up, what God's asking of me to do is to surrender my mind. Let him control my thoughts. So I woke up and said, Lord, here I am. Help me with my thoughts today. Help me not to get lost in anger, lost in lust, lost in anything else. Help me to let my mind be controlled by you. And in doing so, let my eyes look at things the way you look at things. Let my eyes see people the way you see people. And in doing that, let my mouth speak the words that you want me to speak. Help me to encourage people and not just tear them down. I have a terrible, terrible gift of sarcasm. It's amazing. And I have a, a, a bad way of thinking I'm funny when I'm not and hurting people's feelings. It happens. Um, but I had to tell, I had to go before God and say, Lord, use my mouth to bring good, to bring encouragement, to help people know their value instead of tearing them down. And then I would pray that God would use my hands, that whatever I was doing would be to his glory and that he would use my feet to take me to places so that I would be a vessel for him, a light for him so that I would be intentionally in conversations with people 
that he wanted me to talk to, to share his grace, his love, his mercy with. Now, I will tell you, I failed at that daily. There were parts of my day where I succeeded, but by and large, the majority of the time, there would be something that would come up and I would say something stupid or I would do something that hurt somebody or I would, and in that moment, I can either get lost in that disobedience, in that sin, in that brokenness, or I could hit my knees and say, God, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I said that. Forgive me. Help me to make right what I just broke. I think the bottom line is this. When we look at the scriptures, we look at what the Israelites were going through, we look at the sin cycle that they were in, we easily can see how that fits into our lives. Many of us, when I, when I even bring up the sin cycle, many of us are like, okay, yeah, there's three, four, five things that I know are in my life that I continue to have going on that I can't break free from. What this is saying is the way to break free from it is to surrender it to God. Continue to bring it to him. Don't get discouraged because it keeps happening, but be encouraged to take it to him and he will break the chains off. My challenge to us in 2023 is to identify what that sin cycle is in your life, whatever that may be. Ask the Lord to show you what you're chasing after instead of him. What are those mini gods, those idols, those things that continue to take your attention and your affections away from him? And thirdly, do something with it. Hand it over to the Lord. Ask him to start changing your heart, changing your actions, changing your words, changing whatever it is that needs to be changed so that you can follow him more fully. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, and this is um, something the church has been doing for years, but on Wednesday nights, we have Bible studies that we do. And... uh, we're next week going to be starting to get that out there to, to the church. If you wanna know one of the ways that you can continue to fight the sin cycle, get involved in a Bible study with other people. Wednesday nights are a great opportunity. We have other Bible studies that happen throughout the week too. We have some on Monday, Tuesday. Um, we have, it's, it'll all be in the book that we put out next week. But when we get into the word together, God does things. And I would encourage you to be a part of that. We're excited about the offerings that we're gonna have. We'd encourage you to look through them and find something that fits. And give it a shot, give it a semester. It's a 10 to 12 week semester that we have classes. Come be a part of that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we don't have to be stuck in this sin cycle, that we don't have to be afraid that there's no end in sight to the roller coaster that we're on right now, but we can trust that you 
are in control. We can trust that even though we feel out of control, we can still look to you. And that even though we look at the book of Judges and we see all of these savior judges that were appointed, all of them having flaws, all of them having faults, that you gave us the perfect savior in Jesus. And that if we will turn to him, he will fulfill our lives. He will guide us, he will direct us. So Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who needs to break free from a sin cycle or who needs to know Jesus so that they can break free, that you wouldn't let them leave this room until that happens. Have them talk to somebody, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.